Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my slightly out-of-center friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we explore the many interesting issues related to centering predictor variables prior to analysis, both in the standard regression model and in the multi-level model. Along the way, we also discuss honking Diet Coke through your nose, rashes, hostage negotiation, reading at seven months of age, dealer's choice, Coors Light, Galapagos tortoises, friendly monsters, monkeys at typewriters, umlauts, and shooting stop signs. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Do you remember back when we used to fly? I do, and I love flying. I absolutely love it. I'm an avid reader, and I had my Kindle, and I was sitting, unfortunately, in a middle seat because I had jumped an earlier flight on Southwest and had given up my A boarding, and I was a C boarding, and I was in a middle seat, and I actually honked Diet Coke through my (laughs) nose laughing at this book. Uh Have you heard of the book, Shit My Dad Says? (laughs) I have. I love that. I absolutely love that one. For those of you who are not familiar with this, first, you need to be. It is arguably one of the funniest things I've read in my life. It is about a son who looks over a lifetime of having a dad who just blurts out whatever comes into his head about (laughs) anything. No filter. No filter. (laughs) Interlaced with profanity. Oh, yeah saying the most preposterous things, but at the same time, often saying sweet and supportive things. Yeah. There's a website. It is on Goodreads. They have quotes out of it. Yep. The author, by the way, is Justin Halpern. I want you to pick out some of your favorites. So I've got one. I will start while you're queuing this up. Okay. Why would you throw a ball in someone's face? Huh. Uh, that's a pretty good reason. Well, I can't do much about your teacher being pissed, but me and you are good. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, I got one. Okay. This resonates with me because it has to do with when you have a new kid. The baby will talk when he talks. Relax. It ain't like he knows the cure for cancer and ain't spitting it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I might have been a bit obsessive as a parent. Oh, my God, he's not reading. He's he's seven months. (laughs) All right, so here's one I like. I don't give a shit how it happened. The window is broken. Wait, why is there syrup everywhere? Okay, you know what? Now I give a shit how it happened. Let's hear it. (laughs) All right, so continuing on the theme, now the kid is in kindergarten. You thought it was hard? If kindergarten is busting your ass, I got some bad news for you about the rest of your life. (laughs) I just picture this little five-year-old looking looking up at the... At the dad, you know? Here's my next one. Mm -hmm. And this one, I think, could have been applied to me as a child. Mm -hmm. Don't touch that knife. You never need to be holding a knife. I don't give a shit. Learn how to butter stuff with a spoon. (laughs) That message would have been lost on you because you're always (laughs) holding a knife. Continuing with the growing up theme here, this is about swimming. I'd rather not be shot out of a tube into a pool filled with a bunch of nine-year-olds urine. (laughs) All right, so we'll stay in the childhood realm. Uh So this one is on making a Christmas list. You rank the 25 presents you want in order of how much you want them? Are you insane? I said, tell me what you want for Christmas, not make a college football poll. (laughs) Again, this kid is probably like, like nine years old and makes a list. All right, I got one more, and this one really could apply to all ages, I suppose. It has to do with when a kid has built something out of Legos. Listen, I don't want to stifle your creativity, but that thing you built there, it looks like a pile of (laughs) (laughs) I know it's uneven because I started, and I'm going to end because there's one last one that maybe applies to old guys like me and you. So this is on selling his beloved 1967 two-door Mercury Cougar. This is what happens when you have a family. You sacrifice. Pause. You sacrifice a lot. Long pause. It's going to be in your best interest to stay away from me for the next couple of days. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) 
So why this made me Mm -hmm. think about some of what we're going to talk about today. We were texting last night and I was thinking, you could have an entire book written, my advisor says. (laughs) Yeah. I think that it would be very similar in tenor and tone and point. And I thought that we could have an entry point into our conversation today about some of the inane things that either your (laughs) own advisor says to you or what sometimes happens in a quanti-like person Mm -hmm. is being the hostage negotiator between a student's advisor and themselves. Well, do you remember anything that your advisor said that was either some gritty pearl of wisdom or just something completely inane but memorable? I still fear her enough that I'm not going to (laughs) say inane. Wow. I am blessed in that my advisor was one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. We've stayed in close contact over the years. Mm -hmm. She and her husband are surrogate grandparents for our daughters. And it kind of breaks my heart sometimes when I hear people talk about how they are estranged from their advisor or Mm -hmm. how much they despise them or how mean they were. And I have nothing but fond memories of her. Now, that said... She had little elements shared with my mom. I have shared some of my mom's stories mm-hmm. on prior episodes. But for example, once I had a girlfriend for a year and we broke up quite suddenly, not by my choice. And I mentioned this to Lori. So my advisor was Lori Chasson. And I mm-hmm. mentioned to Lori and she clapped her hands together and she said, excellent, more time for work. <laughs> So there was that. How about you? My advisor was a guy named Alan Clockers, who was just wonderful. He's the reason I came into this field. He didn't say a lot of crazy stuff. One thing I remember in particular, I got to campus fairly early one morning because I had to go to the health center. I had a staph infection. And he happened to be there on campus. And he said, hey, what what are you doing here so early? I said, oh, I got to go over to the health center. I've got a staph infection. And then when I came back to the office, instead of him sitting in his office, there was a young woman sitting in his office. And I did not know who this person was. So I walked past his office door a couple of times. His head peeked out from around the corner in his office. And he goes, oh, Greg, this is my daughter, Gretchen. Greg, have you had your rash looked at yet? (laughs) So it was pretty clear he did not want me to marry into the family. What I find interesting, and especially for quanti people who are out there, you're not the advisor yourself, but the advisor at the table or someone else for that matter, but often the advisor at the table will say something, make a comment, offer a criticism that is just factually not correct. It's awkward. Very awkward, right? Yep. And you become the hostage negotiator. (laughs) Sometimes it won't happen where the advisor talks in a meeting, but a student will come to your office and say, my advisor wants me to do this with the data. Yeah. You know, a lot of times maybe it's just not ideal and we have other ways, but a lot of times it's just wrong. If you're in the room, then it takes like UN level diplomacy If you're not in the room when it happens, then you have to sort of gently coach their student into, you know, that's a pretty common thing that people think, but here's another way to think about it. But in your head, you're thinking, yeah, that's just wrong. And I don't want to blame the advisor. I know very little about most things, and advisors know some things about quantitative stuff, and a lot of the misunderstandings that they have are quite common. You're absolutely right as a starting point. This is not a holier-than-thou stuff. As I say wrong stuff from when the sun comes up in the morning to when the sun goes down at night, and I've just chosen to affiliate with people who are polite enough to not point it out to me. Or who can edit it out. Or we can edit it out (laughs) later, exactly. Well, you and I did that. We had an episode. Oh, yeah. Was it last year that I went on for five minutes and you and I had a conversation after the recording was done where you very gently pointed out that actually that wasn't right what I described. And we did edit it out and I looked very smart and I appreciate that. (laughs) I wish I could do that with all aspects of my life. Uh Here's one centering. Uh, just that word 
right? I felt that in so many different places because that's something that comes up in all different kinds of models from things that are really simple to things that are much more complicated. So yeah, you got some rant here? It's not a rant because this is tricky. It's not complicated, but Mm -hmm. it's tricky. If there is a rant, it's a slight rant where an advisor does not respect what the student knows. Mm -hmm. So I was in a situation semi-recently where an advisor told a student in just a traditional regression model, a couple of key predictors were not significant. The advisor said, why don't you try centering them because that might make them significant. Uh. (laughs) We'll talk about this in a moment, but that's just a factual misstatement. Uh My mini rant is that the student replied, I don't think that would change the significance of the regression coefficients, and the advisor verbally slapped them down. Then the student ended up in my office. So I thought what we should talk about a little bit today was centering. What is it? Why is it a point of confusion? Because it is. Mm -hmm. Some things change. Some things don't. It plays out in a certain way in a traditional regression model, but it gets exponentially more complicated within a multi-level model. Tell me what we mean by centering. So centering almost always refers to mean centering. If I have in a regression, for example, X1 and X2, X1 and X2 come in some natural metric. The metric might be interpretable. It might not be interpretable. It might be something like a Likert scale that we're pretending is continuous enough, interval enough. It might be a variable with very physical properties like weight that's meaningful to us. But the idea of centering is that you would subtract the mean from X1 and you would subtract the mean from X2 so that now zero reflects an average for those two things. The variables X1 and X2, other than having a different mean now, a mean of zero, they're not imbued with more information. Those two variables do not correlate any differently. They don't have any different variance, any different covariance. You've just sort of moved where the origin is on your scatter plot. That's about it. We can think and not figuratively think. We can literally think about the mean of a set of observations on a given variable as the point at which you would place the fulcrum on a lever that would balance the weight of the observations. It's what we would call a linear transformation. We do the same thing to everybody. Yes. So if the mean is 5.8, everybody gets 5.8 subtracted from their score. And so if you're standing up against a wall in a room and you have a sample of 20 people, you tell everybody take three steps to your right. So to the point of the advisor telling the student is imagine you have a simple two predictor regression model. You can have uncentered, so in the raw metric, and you can have centered. And you estimate the models, put them side by side, Every numerical value on the output is going to be identical, except for one thing. And that's the intercept of the regression equation. And remember the intercept is what is the model implied value of the outcome when all predictors are zero. Mm -hmm. Well, if your predictors are in the raw metric, it's whatever zero represents. Maybe it's in the range. Maybe it's out of the range. We worry about this sometimes. We have one to five ordinal variables and the intercept is what is the mean of the dependent variable for a person who has zero on all of them. Well, it's outside the logical range. So you center them and now it's what is the mean of the outcome at the mean of the predictor. You center them. The slope of the predictors is the same. The standard error is the same. The critical ratio is the same. The p-value is the same. The squared semi-partial. Everything is the same. The advisor is wrong. So two things. One is, I really like that you mentioned that the intercept changes because models work for you. In most cases, you don't have to be stuck with whatever the parameters are that get spat out by the model. There are ways to, in this case, reparameterize your model so that you get out something you want. In this case, you know, the intercept is usually a throwaway parameter. But there might be instances where the the intercept actually is kind of informative. This is one of the simplest ways that you can make the intercept be really anything you want, right? We're talking about mean centering. You could center at some other meaningful point. So the first thing is that models work for you. And if doing this gives you something that's more interpretable in the intercept for you, then bless you, go ahead and do it. One of the things that have come up on multiple prior episodes are be selfish. Yeah. Not in uh, where people don't like you kind of way, but <laughs> you have control over the parameterization of the model, so do it as you would like. You made a nice note, and I don't want to drill too much into it because we have other fish to fry, 
You can center it a median. You can center it a mode. If you have groups where you have untreated group and a treated but discontinued group and a treated but continued treated group, you can center around the mean of the untreated group. Do whatever you want. It's yeah. dealer's choice. Remember in high school, you would play those awful poker games. I don't <laughs> even want to think about how much money I lost. I was horrible at poker. But dealer's choices, when it came to that person, you get to pick whatever the rules, whatever the game. Yeah, do whatever you want. Just remember, nothing is going to change except the intercept term. This is what you did in high school? You played poker? I drank a lot of beer and smoked <laughs> Swisher sweet cigars and played poker. Dear God. Okay. The fact that I am not serving 20 to life Uh is not lost on anyone who knows me. All right, moving on. Point two, and maybe this is where you're going. What happens if someone wants to test the product of X1 and X2? Mm, I'm feeling a grievance coming. You lied to me on the holiday episode because you said the holiday airing of grievances would get mm-hmm. you to, I think you said October. <laughs> October. Yeah, I know. You're yeah. right. <laughs> I didn't make it a week. Uh-huh. So let's open this can of worms, because this is often the context where centering enters in. People seem to think that you have to center your predictors to be able to assess the product of X1 and X2, for example. Or we could talk about this as interaction. We could talk about this as moderation, right? Moderated regression models. However you want to talk about it, centering is right here, front center. So another key paper, if you're quanti, to at least be familiar with is Cohen, and I'm pulling this out of the air. You tell me, Greg, I think it was 1968 Psych Bull. And it's a wonderful title. It's something like products are interactions and powers are curves, something like that. You'll look it up as I'm talking. Let's say we have a two predictor regression, X1 and X2, and we want to look at the interaction between X1 and X2. It is an absolute magical property that we can get that interaction by in-data management forming the product of X1 and X2 and bringing that product in as a third predictor into the regression. So you have the main effect of X1, the main effect of X2, and the product of X1 and X2. And the partial, maybe that was part of it, partial products. I think you found it. Tell me. What do you mean found it? I had it committed to memory. Mm -hmm. Um, You know I'm watching you, right? I can see you. If I remember correctly, (laughs) it was uh, 1978, Cohen, partialed products are interactions, partialed powers are curve components. Psych Bulletin, pages 858 to 866, if I remember correctly. I suck. I was off by a decade. I said 68, so 78. But if you're quanti, you should be familiar with this paper. There he gives the proofs that if you take the product between X1 and X2, bring that in as a third predictor, and this is the important one, is look at the partial. So that's the title, partial products. If you covary out the main effects, that captures the interaction. And there's fascinating work is that's a test of parallelism and does the magnet of X1 on Y vary as a function of X2, all the usual stuff. It turns out you have the option of centering your main effects before you create that product term. So you have X1 and X2 in your data step. This is how pedantic this is. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean in a very practical step, you have X1, you have X2, and you create a new variable that's the product. You have the option of centering those main effects before creating the product. Two things. First, center them, don't center them. It don't freaking matter. <laughs> but, but, but. I have heard so many times. I've seen this in defenses. I have seen this in article reviews. Mm-hmm. They are often very pejorative and saying the authors did not mean center the terms before creating the product. The tests of the interaction is flawed and must be redone. It is not. Yep. There is an advantage to centering before taking the product term. And that is, it does reduce the correlation of the main effect terms with the product term, right? So if you think about it, it is a little weird in these 
Venn diagrams is if you have X1 and you have X2 and you have the combination of X1 and X2, well, you're building in a correlation between the product of X1 and X2 with the component X1 and X2 separately. And centering through a little mathematical trick that's pretty cool to see if you play around with it, centering reduces the correlation between your main effects and the product term. If you center and create the product term and you do not center and create the product term and you look at the interaction, those are unchanged. I will tell you I don't love the term main effects. I know that that's common for these kinds of models. The reason I don't love that is because it feels like it borrows from the ANOVA world. And in the ANOVA world, main effects and interactions are often these nicely orthogonalized elements so that the main effect is the main effect, whether or not there is an interaction. Thing two, it's this correlation that we feel like we're inducing that becomes very, very frightening, right? And we use the term multicollinearity, mm. and then all of a sudden, <gasps> and if you just say the words, we have to be careful about creating an additional variable that is highly redundant, highly correlated with the other variables. It has a certain logic to it, mm -hmm. right? It's truthy. <laughs> <laughs> But that doesn't actually make multicollinearity the problem here. And I would argue that the problem that we have here actually has nothing to do with multicollinearity. I think mm -hmm. it has to do with some other things that we can talk about. But before we do, the other thing I really want to underscore is something that you said is because, in fact, there is correlation that's changing here by virtue of centering, the interaction, we're assessing that exactly the same way. But what does change is how we interpret the prediction by X1 and or the prediction by X2. And that's something worth understanding how that works. Aiken and West have a wonderful sage book that lays out all of these basic things. One of my heroes from the early days is David Ragosa, and Ragosa <laughs> has some just wonderful papers on that. If the relation between X1 and Y varies in part as a function of X2, probing assesses the question, well, in what way? You probe an interaction and you say, well, if the slope of X1 depends in part on X2, let's compute the slope at a high value of X2, at a medium value of X2, at a low value of X2. Mm -hmm. I have a rant that I will save for the holiday episode of 2021. <laughs> I dare you to save it. I dare you I to save it for eight months. There's I know. no shot. I know, no I, shot. know I know, I know. <laughs> Multicollinearity, I feel like, is like a monster that lives under the bed that we're all so frightened about, but that it turns out it is a really friendly monster and it eats the mm -hmm. mean monsters. <laughs> there are two things about multicollinearity that we keep our head up about. So imagine you have, we'll take a very short trip into Matrix land. Your design matrix is X. This has all the information about your predictors. You have a vector Y, which is your outcome. To get your regression coefficients, it is X prime X inverse, X prime Y. It is one of the most beautiful expressions in closed form matrix. If you do X prime X inverse, X prime Y, you will get your vector of regression coefficients. Well, X prime X is going to give you your sums of squares and cross products, which is functionally a covariance matrix. You got to invert that. Mm -hmm. If you have a collinearity among columns in X, you can't invert it and you can't do regression. I have seen people say, well, I'm worried about multicollinearity because two of my predictors are correlated 0.48. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't start hitting inversion problems until way in the high 0.9s, mm -hmm. all right? So that's part one. Part two, though, is even if you can invert it, multicollinearity can lead to inflation of your standard errors. And we have this nice diagnostic called variance inflation factor, VIF. We didn't talk about it in the diagnostic episode, but it's another regression diagnostic that you can assess. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've not had a situation with multicollinearity that either precluded me from inverting X prime X or has led to excessive variance inflation factors. I think it's this monster in the shadows that frighten us. Yeah. If an advisor tells you 
you have to center your predictors before forming the interaction. That's factually incorrect. There are situations where it's beneficial, as you're mm-hmm. alluding to, right? Dealer's choice. Be selfish. If there's a mean to an end of centering, absolutely knock yourself out. Yeah. A lot of times it's like, eh, why not? Right? If it does reduce the correlation between, I do like main effects. So I'm going to keep saying it because you can't stop me because you're 500 miles away right now. <laughs> It does reduce the correlation between the main effects and the product term. Mm -hmm. So go ahead and do it, but you're not a bad person if you don't. If you have two predictors, X1 and X2, that are highly correlated, forget about the product for a second. If you have X1 and X2, and they're fairly highly correlated, then to visualize what the issue is, that would mean that the points that you have in a scatter plot that has X1, X2, and Y, well, the X1 and X2 points are going to line up very, very nicely. And in this regression space, what you're trying to do is fit a plane. And if you had this beautiful lining up of points that's occurring in three dimensions, think about where is the plane going to go? If I have three points that are all spread out, I know where the plane is going to go. But I have a bunch of points that are lining up. The plane is very unstable. It could flip. It can rotate. And that creates instability in terms of the standard errors. If X1 and X2 weren't fairly highly correlated, then the product of those things is not going to magically have some high correlation with these other things. I am a big fan of centering the moderator, not because of any correlational nonsense. I'm a big fan because oftentimes it just helps with interpretation. It means that I can interpret the slope of x1, if x2 is the moderator, I can interpret the slope of x1 in a way that's meaningful for me. So I am all about centering solely for the purpose of getting out parameters that are easy for you to interpret. In this case, it would have something to do with the slope that you would be experiencing, the effect, if you want to call it that, you would be experiencing for X1 at what would be a mean level of your moderating variable. That, to me, is something meaningful. And one of the reasons I think about your standard errors inflating as much as they do And honestly, I think this ties to some stuff that you did a long time ago with Dan Bauer. When your moderating variable has a scale and zero is just not a meaningful point, zero can be way out of bounds, right? So if your moderator variable is SAT scores and you don't center that moderator variable, then the slope that you're going to get for your X1 predictor will be calibrated to what is a zero point for your moderator. And that's a completely unmeaningful point on that particular scale. Well, when you have predictions for things that are way far out of bounds, what happens? They're highly unstable, right? The predictions that you have, and some of you might have seen pictures like this before, what are they called? Spotlight plots or something like that, right? Where you get the fatter and fatter and fatter prediction intervals as you get farther and farther away from the mean. And I seem to remember you and Bauer, like around 2005 or so, did something around that particular issue, trying to find where there are significance points. Does that even sound familiar to you? I mean, I'm not sure you had to say a really long time ago or whatever (laughs) you said. I mean, it was, Uh you know... But we wrote a handful of papers on probing and plotting interactions and Mm -hmm. applying Johnson-Neiman regions Mm -hmm. of significance. We could have a whole nother conversation for that. You're exactly right. You get these, what we call butterfly plots, and we didn't coin that. People have been using that term for Mm -hmm. half a century, but that you have the greatest confidence in the centroid. And then as you move out, and they're beautiful, they're parametric And so they're symmetric, and you and I love things that are symmetric. Oh, yes. Let me use that paper as a pivot point. OLS regression, everything we've been talking about so far, that's like easy. In and out, nobody gets hurt. You want to center it, great. You don't want to center it, that's fine. Just be aware of what your implications are. Mm -hmm. If you center it, tell your advisor it's not going to change your R squared. Your treatment effect isn't going to become significant if it wasn't significant before. This is all pretty standard stuff. Take a predictor and divide by the square root of pi. I don't freaking care. (laughs) These are linear transformations. (laughs) One of the greatest words of science is, however, let's talk about centering in a multi-level framework. Because now there isn't a mean. Well, it turns out there's several means from which you can choose. 
I'm quite literally holding the coffee pot and I keep waiting to take a break so that I can refill my coffee. Talk to us about how Centerino rises in a multi-level while I refill my coffee. Well, I'm going to set the stage, but I really want you to do the mic drop on this one because I know this is something that you think about a lot and that you teach, right? You even told me during the holiday episode <laughs> that you... <laughs> the reason I told you that I teach this is uh-huh. your prior point was there is no need to teach this. So, yeah, please, uh-huh. let's let's have that conversation again. So if you have the simplest kind of multi-level design here where you have data that are in clusters, you have sampled clusters of data such as classrooms, and you have sampled students within those particular classrooms. And so you have your data with this multi-level structure. There are a number of means that are in play here if we wanted to talk about means. We could imagine that there is a mean across all of the scores that you have from all kids across all classrooms, but there are also means within each of those particular classrooms. You have choices here as to if and how you might center those data prior to some analysis. And unlike what we were talking about before, this might actually matter. And it will matter, is how I feel about it. Now, I'm unstuck in time as we're sitting here and my feet are up on the desk. Our episode where we talk to Knuckles will have dropped by the time people hear this, right? Yes. So the whole point of the conversation with Knuckles, that was court-ordered and we had no choice. That's Dan McNeish. Yes, like it matters. (laughs) He was talking about very often we have non-independence in a data set that arises from some nuisance variable. Mm -hmm. Why do you collect data at schools? It's because that's where they keep the kids. Yes, kids are nested in classroom, classroom within school. But if it's a nuisance variable, we have all sorts of interesting, easy ways that we can control for that. But my polite reaction, both at the holiday party and also when talking with Knuckles, is you're absolutely right unless you have a multi-level question. Mm-hmm. And so you have kids within classrooms and we have some level one kid predictor of the kid outcome. What it turns out is we have some overall effect of that, but we can break that down into the component that is a within group or within classroom effect and a between classroom effect. I don't know if you have this. Maybe it's just having a job that I can't be fired from that I can finally admit some of this <laughs> stuff. I have three levels of knowing something. One is I just don't understand it. Two is I understand it well enough to teach it. And then three is I actually understand it. <laughs> now, one would think the second and the third one, we would collapse into one. Oh, no, no, no. But no, 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 no. <laughs> For a number of years, I taught about disaggregation of effects, but I didn't have that light bulb inside <laughs> of, oh, I get it. Like I understood the algebra, right? I understood the math. I understood the inference. I was driving to work and there was an NPR story and they were talking about the relation between body mass and life expectancy across animal species. And it was this fluff piece. Remember before the last five years where they used to have stories like this on NPR, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, wow, there's this interesting little thing to think about. I was driving to work and I had that flash insight. And here's an abbreviated version of it. It falls under the, well, how hard could that be? Mm -hmm. We want to know what is the relation between body mass and life expectancy for different species. All right, let's get 20 cows, 20 horses, 20 ducks, 20 cats, 20 dogs, and we'll look at them all at once. And you get this kind of ambiguous flat effect where there's not a super strong relation between body mass and life expectancy. And you say, all right, go catch the ducks. And you get the 20 ducks. And it turns out when you look at just the ducks, there's a big negative relation. Bigger ducks live way shorter than skinnier ducks. Hmm. And that holds within the cows and the cats and the dogs. And you say, well, wait a minute. Let's compute the mean of the ducks, the mean of the cows, the mean of the cats, and plot the mean body mass with the mean life expectancy. And there's a big positive effect. Cows outlive dogs, outlive ducks, whatever. So bigger animals in general live longer. On average. On average. Except for those freaking Galapagos tortoises, which just (laughs) screw up all of them. Because you got some 20-pound tortoise that's 180 years old, and it's like, thank you. Manuel the tortoise and the Galapagos. So what is it? Body mass, is it positively related to life expectancy? Is it negatively 
related to life expectancy or is it not related to life expectancy? Well, the answer to that is yes. Mm -hmm. If you pool over the aggregate data, there is not a strong relation. If you look at the level of the average for the species, there's a big positive effect. That's the between group effect. If you look within a species, there's a big negative effect, mm -hmm. all right? That's the within group effect. Really, the walkaway point is if you want a duck as a pet, get a skinny one. If you want a duck for dinner, get a big one. <laughs> I was driving to work down MLK Boulevard that I drive down to get to campus. A grueling 11-minute oh, drive wow. is, I know poor that... you. Yep, poor me. Uh -huh. Three stoplights. It's very frustrating. You wouldn't know anything yeah. about that living in the <laughs> Washington, D.C. metro area. I move from knowing enough to teach it to, like, really understanding. And so there are two things at hand. One, we can center our predictor in different ways within the multi-level model to achieve different ends. Mm -hmm. We can leave it in its raw metric. We can center it with respect to the mean of everybody, ignoring mm -hmm. group membership. That's called grand mean centering. But we can also center it with respect to your group mean. So are you a big duck for ducks? Mm -hmm. Are you a small cat for for cats. That's the within group. So we can group mean centering. And there are two walkaway points from that. One, the models fit equivalently. Mm -hmm. But the regression coefficients you get from those different approaches represent different parts of that total effect within group effect between group effect. And it is insanely important you understand which mm -hmm. of those you're working with and how to properly interpret those effect with respect to theory. If we make a research question out of this animal example, say someone is interested in the relation between weight and longevity, can you frame that research question now, put it in a multi-level model and tell us what we will get out depending on what we do with the variable? Ooh, I can try. Wait, wait, wait. Aren't you at level three understanding here? Yeah, but that doesn't mean I explain it to anybody. <laughs> oh, you mean I wouldn't understand. No, I can't articulate because you insist on recording these damn things in the uh -huh. morning, which is uh -huh. when I am least resourced. But as long as it's convenient for you... Sure, we'll do I've that. I've been up since 3.45, man, so... That uh, is my let's... point. <laughs> let's talk about body mass and longevity for animals. I like that because mm -hmm. it makes sense, right? We can think about skinny ducks, yeah. and we can think about this freaking tortoise from Galapagos. Yeah, outlier. An outlier. We're going to drop Manuel the tortoise, who is 182 years old. <laughs> Plus, I don't know how they know Manuel is 182 years old. I think yeah. they just look at it and say, I think he's pretty old. And as long as you just throw an exact number on it, you know, nobody asks. <laughs> it distills down to fora. We have talked about this before mm -hmm. as fora. I was in a competition. There weren't enough old guys, so they put us in the pool. I lost miserably to a 22-year-old who punched me in the shoulder and said, you fight good for an old guy. <laughs> Right? So that's big for a chipmunk. That's really uh -huh. small for an airplane. We were out on a safari once and saw a tiny baby giraffe that was eight feet tall. All right? It's all with respect to. Well, think about you have five ducks and we get an average. I have no idea what a duck weighs. We're going to say a duck weighs five pounds. The average of your ducks, let's say they're 10 ducks. I'm going to change. And we have 10 ducks and the average is five. Well, if we group mean center, that is we subtract five from the duck's weight. So an eight pound duck is now three. A three pound duck is now negative three. Yes, I know I just made a second grade math error. I told you I shouldn't record these things in the morning. Well, what does it mean to be negative three on your body mass index? Well, that doesn't make any sense, except that it reflects relative standing to the other ducks. All right, so if you're in a class and are looking at some kind of class performance, is your test scores above the mean for the group, below the mean for the group. So you have a negative three, is that you're three units below on body mass for the ducks. Well, we do that for the horses. 
Well, we can have a negative 50 Mm -hmm. for the horse because it's 50 units below in body mass index relative to all the other horses. So it's a a light horse. It's a a small horse. We do this Mm -hmm. for all the groups. We now have group mean-centered predictor that reflects your standing relative to the group to which you belong. But here's the poke in the eye. And it's kind of a poke in the eye that moved me from level two and eventually to level three. Think about that fulcrum. Within the group, the mean of your group mean centered is by definition zero. Mm -hmm. So the mean of body mass for the ducks is zero. For horses is zero. For tortoises is zero. For goldfish is zero. What the hell? Mm -hmm. You just lined up all the groups on a vertical axis where the mean of your level one predictor is zero. Mm -hmm. You removed between group variability on this level one predictor because all of them are centered around the group mean. But we have the group mean of body mass for the ducks, for the horses, for the goldfish, for the tortoises. We can bring that group mean in as a predictor itself in the Mm. model, and that's going to give us that between-group effect. We're kind of glossing over entire bodies of research on this. Roudenbush and Breich have amazing material in their book on this. Mm -hmm. Enders and Tofigi have a really Mm -hmm. nice, I think, psych methods paper on revisiting centering. 2007, maybe? I'm not going to know. 1918. I'm not so Uh good with dates these days. We've established (laughs) that. Uh Many people have contributed to this. But if you group mean center your level one covariate and use that as a predictor and then use the group means as a level two covariate, you have disaggregated the within and the between and you get a simultaneous estimate of that negative within group. Skinnier ducks live longer than heavier ducks, but you also get the between group that on average elephants live longer than cats live longer than goldfish. Is there an argument for grand mean centering? Yes. Okay. If you do grand mean centering of your level one predictor and only use that in your model and not incorporate the group means as a predictor, that's Mm going to give you an aggregate effect. That is going to be a mishmash of the within group (laughs) effect and the between group effect and Roudenbush, who is way freaking smarter than I would ever hope to be, defines what mishmash is, and you can actually compute as a function of interclass correlations and group sizes what that weighted contribution is of the between and the within. But I would very strongly recommend that if you grand mean center your level one predictor, don't bring only that into the model because you're getting this aggregate effect that doesn't represent either one. If you grand mean center and then bring the group means in as a level two predictor, you're getting this really neat thing called the contextual effect. Mm -hmm. which is the difference between the between and the within effect. And in a lot of educational settings, that has some really interesting interpretations about the effect of the context within which an individual is embedded. So like the classroom context in particular, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can have the between effect, you can have the within effect, but you can also have the difference between the between and within effect And that's the context effect or the compositional effect that is sometimes used in organizational research or educational research. On my side of the street, we're really focused on the between and the within. But there's a whole set of applications where it's kind of weird to think about, but the difference between the between and within itself is of interest. If you do group mean centering and you get out this nice bifurcation of between and within in this model, can't you reparameterize or create some additional parameters as a function of the things that you're getting to get the mishmash as a byproduct of this and maybe be able to get all of this out as one thing? I've not seen that done, but I would think that that would be possible. Mm-hmm. Roudenbush has equations that show how these are broken down, and it's kind of weird because it's a little bit mind-bendy because when we teach multi-level modeling, we talk about the intraclass correlation of the dependent variable. Mm-hmm. We focus solely on the dependent variable. On average, what is the correlation among your dependent measures within a class? That is the Mm -hmm. intra-class correlation. If you have an intra-class correlation of 0.18, 
on average, students who share a classroom have scores that are correlated 0.18. Mm-hmm. We never think about the interclass correlation of the level one predictors, but those are super important when you start thinking about these compositional effects. And Roudenbush lays out equations where you get the intraclass correlation of your level one predictor, and that goes into the weighting of mm-hmm. the within and between effects and what you get in the aggregate effect. You could work your way left and right and break it apart and put it back together. So I like the ducks. When you think about it is, is it big for a duck? Is it little for a duck? But let's think momentarily, how would this really play out in a hierarchical design where you have multiple observations nested within group? A classic example, and go to Roddenbush and Breich in their book, and they lay this out in absolute glorious detail. But say, for example, you have a level one predictor is socioeconomic status, the socioeconomic (laughs) status of the child. Roddenbush dedicated a big part of his life in studying equity in education. Mm -hmm. And we don't want where Richard kids do better because of their family finances than kids who don't have those same finances. So we want to study the relation between socioeconomic status and outcome. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not dissimilar to talking about, well, we're interested between body mass and life expectancy. We have an individual level of socioeconomic status that has a corollary of body mass index for an individual. Mm -hmm. But we have the socioeconomic status of the group, the average socioeconomic status. So let's say we're studying schools. We have kids within schools in multiple schools. We have student socioeconomic status, but we have the socioeconomic status of the school. Mm-hmm. We started this conversation with interactions. This stuff gets freaking fascinating mm-hmm. because we have the student level socioeconomic status, but we have the student going to a school that is characterized by a socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So we have wealthier and less wealthy students attending wealthier and less wealthy schools. So what we can do is take that level one predictor and aggregate up to the school. So if we have 100 kids, each of whom we have a socioeconomic status measure, we can take the mean of those and that becomes a characteristic of the school. Mm -hmm. I did that study I've told before about soldiers nested within squads. Mm -hmm. Well, we have individual soldier characteristics, but we can take the mean of those and that is a characteristic of the squad. And that is what we're trying to do here. We have the individual body mass of ducks, but we can take the mean of all the ducks and that becomes a characteristic of ducks, of the multiple ducks nested within. So this rolls up in a variety of ways, but there's a poke in the eye. You always got to pay the reaper. right? Mm -hmm. All right, let's say we have 20 kids in a school and we have the socioeconomic status and we take the mean of those 20 kids. Are we really, from a psychometric standpoint, going to use the average SES of 20 kids to represent the SES of the school Mm -hmm. of 800 kids? Mm -hmm. And also, don't forget, I have both Gauss and Markov buried in my backyard. (laughs) And if I drag in their corpses and prop them up in the corner, what are they going to say about using an observed variable in a regression in terms of being measured without error? Right. One of the things that people pretty rapidly forget about is these means that we compute based on the individuals nested within groups can be wildly unreliable. Mm -hmm. And that biases our regression coefficients in exactly the same way that they would be if we have an unreliable measure of anything else that we do. So there's an observed mean, but there's also a latent mean. Mm -hmm. And the gap between those is a function of sampling, but it's also a function of the quality of the measure that you have. We center on the best information we have, but that can be causing us a problem, right? Yeah, I have a bad habit of quoting people I despise Another great quote by Donald Rumsfeld is you don't go to war with the army you want, you go with the army you have. Mm -hmm. And we have 20 kids and we have their own SES estimate and we compute the mean because that's what we have. Mm -hmm. And then you pay the reaper on, is that representative? Is that reliable? Is there a latent counterpart? There are two ways that we can approach this. Well, three, I guess. One is you go to war with the army you have and you just say, yeah, that's what I have. 
I know this may be unreliable. I know there may be bias, and I'm willing to pay that price to do these other things that I'm doing. Second, there's some neat ways of thinking creatively is, could you get the socioeconomic status of the school in some other way? Is there extant data? Is there census Mm -hmm. data? Is there economic data? Does the Bureau of Labor Statistics have some information about neighborhood wealth that we could use as a second source of information? Another one that I think is really neat, and I think the field would do well to think more carefully about is maybe a decade ago, Lutka, Oliver Lutka, Mm -hmm. L-U-D-T-K-E, I think. Yes. And I think there's Mm -hmm. an umlaut in there. There has to be if if it's legit. Yeah. He and colleagues have some really nice work of saying just what you alluded to is, well, wait a minute, if it's a latent variable and these are flawed indicators where we have our level one observation, could we build in a latent covariate into the multi-level model and estimate and remove the deleterious effects of sampling variability and disattenuate that regression coefficient. He has a really nice paper on that from about 10 years ago where they try to achieve just that. I think Herb Marsh was on that and some other colleagues. I remember it's like six authors or something. Yeah, so I don't want to omit anybody, but Lutka's the lead one. But it lays out really nice analytics and a simulation and uh, applied examples. And there are also several ways you can do it. You can build it into the model as a latent covariate, but Mm -hmm. Kroon and colleagues, Mm C-R-O-O-N, Kroon and colleagues, have a two-step procedure that does not require the complexities of the latent where you do some correcting and that performed really well in the simulations also. But my point is there are some new ways of doing this other than just adding up your eight ducks and computing the mean of the ducks and using that as a predictor that maybe are much better suited for testing these kinds of questions. That is just not in my experience, very well known or very accessible. It's been around for a decade or so, and we understand it conceptually. It's as if the multi-level modeling world doesn't tend to cross with the measurement world as often as it should. I hope in the future that that becomes more accessible. I think Part of it is the analytics are accessible across several software packages. Yes. And the Kroon method, you can do standard MLM and it's just a two-step process. This is very, very clever. But I think part of it is, is people just don't know about it. Right. You know, you get some cool weirdo thing where God himself couldn't figure it out and win bugs. This one is not. This is off-the-shelf stuff that you mm-hmm. could do. But... Oh, look, there's the Reaper. I think he wants to be paid. Mm -hmm. One of the things with the Ludka, and they have a really nice comparison of this, is in expectation, the latent variable covariate is superior to the mean estimate. But because of the complexity, the latent variable covariate is also much more variable. There's a higher sampling variability. At the end of the day, on average, you tend to make about the same inference that you would one way or the other. Right? But it's way cooler. It's way cooler. It is way cooler. (laughs) But let's step back to my advisor says, Uh which is the centering in the OLS is dealer's choice. Yes. Do it. Don't do it. Divide by the square root of pi. Add your child's birthday. I don't care. It's a linear transformation. Just know what your intercept means and know how you're interpreting those conditional effects between your predictors. In the MLM, that doesn't hold. Mm -hmm. If you do one or the other or not at all, you're representing your data in exactly the same way. The models fit identically. Now, there's a complexity of whether you have a random slope or don't have a random slope. These things hold in this isomorphic way if you have random intercepts. If you know what that means, fine. And if not, fine too. It doesn't matter. But Mm -hmm. Somewhere out there, you know, Snyder's or Bosker is listening and saying, ah, that's not true. It's like, all right, for a random intercept only. I would like it if Snyder's or Bosker listened to this. But Uh for a random intercept only, if you don't center, if you grand mean center, if you group mean center, they are all explaining the data equivalently. And you are going to get different inferences. And... A predictor might be significant when you grand mean center it, and it might be non-significant when you group mean center it or vice versa. And people kind of freak out over this. And it's like, look, take a deep breath. All right. Get a beer. Get a Coors Light. Coors Light makes everything better. Get a nice can of Coors Light. Drill a couple of 22 rounds through a stop sign. (laughs) 
right? Whatever it is you do to to center yourself, right? This is Let me like, just say, no one with an umlaut in their name is going to drink a Coors Light. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they should. Uh-huh. Just take a deep breath. And yes, one can be highly significant, one can be non-significant, and one can be significant and negative, where the other one was significant and positive. Mm-hmm. These are all different aspects of the structure of your data. And think about, well, is there no effect between body mass and life expectancy? Is there a significant positive effect? Is there a significant negative effect? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. All three exist because right. they're looking at different aspects of the relation between body mass and life expectancy. Yes, and the model works for you. You make these choices, you understand the parameters that you get out, how to interpret them. And we've talked about the OLS case, we've talked about the multi-level case. This extends into the longitudinal world. Mm. There's a whole lot of fun stuff to talk about with respect to centering. We could save that for another day. All of this plays out in person means centering. Yeah. So... There's a difference between saying in the last seven days, I drank this amount versus Mm -hmm. in the last seven days, I drank more than I usually do. Well, that's big for a duck. It's small for a duck. Well, I drank more on this day for me or I drank less on this day for me. And you and I could each have a five, but it's more than my usual and less than your usual. Yes, that's highly rational behavior for Patrick, but that same level is highly irrational behavior for Greg. Exactly. I would recommend, go look at Enders and Tofiki, go look at Roddenbush and Breich, look at Ludke, because something that they raise in there that I hadn't thought about before, and it was one of those things where it was like, oh, I wish I had this insight. There's a little bit of a logical syllogism in there that you start picking at a scab a little bit. If you're going to think about this covariate as a latent variable, well, that puts you into the formative versus reflective indicators. Yes, it does. Right? Somewhere across town, Boland just sat up. He was like, there was a wrinkle in the force. Somehow he looked out the window. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know why, but somewhere... Hmm. There's a cause and effect (laughs) indicator. But Lutke has a really nice description about, well, we could think about a group mean as a formative-like measure. And so those were the ones like I was talking about, is if you have socioeconomic status, if you're looking at racial composition, if you're looking at some characteristic of the individual, Mm -hmm. that you would want some overall measure that you could think about that as SES, right? And that's what Boland talks about. It's ludicrous to talk about that there's some latent SES that causes how many years of education you have. But what's really interesting is Lutke got me thinking about an effect indicator or reflective indicator is often things of a student's perception of the teacher's efficacy. Or in the example I gave before, the soldier's perception of trust that they have in their squad leader, Mm -hmm. that's more a reflective indicator. And you would actually approach this differently in that latent covariate model. And it really makes you think differently about how these things are operating and what are the potential limitations of just adding up your eight ducks and dividing by eight. That's a pretty blunt force instrument that maybe we can do better than that. Now, I'm going to ask you if I can close with a haiku. Wow, I did not see that coming. (laughs) I was going to close with, if you want dinner, get a fat duck. If you want a pet, get a skinny duck. But if you want to go haiku, sure. Well, we have the haiku episode coming up late in April. And someone... Specifically, Tim Hayes, a Florida international, submitted, well, to be honest, he submitted like 20 (laughs) (laughs) haikus. He should have been grading midterms. He submitted a so ton. So Fisher would say at least one of those is good. Yes. <laughs> just just randomly. <laughs> there had to be a good one in there. Coincidentally, a monkey at a typewriter submitted a haiku. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's quite good. This is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. <laughs> All right. So this one happens to be completely on point for this episode. So I thought maybe we could close with a haiku. Here we go. Exhale out the negative energy.
group mean centering unconflates your MLM. Then it has meaning. Oh, damn. Hmm? I saw you counting on fingers as you <laughs> read that. You can't help was, yourself, can you? I'm just ver- I count things. Yeah, I'm just verifying Greg, for the 18th time. <laughs> I right. like that. And for the record, the monkey on the typewriter was my <laughs> submission. So <laughs> some of your better work. <laughs> <laughs> You've read that paper. Yes, it's good work for you. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> uh, as always, thank you for your time. Post something on Twitter of your advisor said. Let's hear, uh, I want to hear, because I got to tell you, speaking as an advisor, the that comes out of my mouth is hard to measure. So let's hear it. Post on Twitter. What is stuff that either you have said or your advisor has said to you? Oh, God help us. All right, everybody, please take care. Bye-bye. Hey, couponers, don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to experience the feeling of regression to the mean. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get Quantitude merch on RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent of dial-up internet. This week's episode has been sponsored by the Center for Academic Relationships, reminding you to find someone who can completely fill your soul, like writer's guilt. And by the Center for Unsuccessful Parenting, reminding you that children who say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Grow up to be associate editors who say, is your review done yet? Is your review done yet? Is your review done yet? And finally, by the Center for Academic Work-Life Balance, Reminding you to enjoy your spring break. <laughs> spring break. <laughs> uh-huh. Break. <laughs> Good one. Ooh, yeah. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>